I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about how China is courting African security chiefs and China's overarching engagement with Africa, we have with us Judd Devermont, who is our Africa program director at CSIS. Judd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Happy to be here. So, Judd, you have a new report out that came out last month called Personal Ties Measuring Chinese and U.S. Engagement with African Security Chiefs Out. It's a fascinating read. It's on the CSIS website. But tell us, Judd, what does the United States have to gain strategically from building strong ties with African security chiefs, as the Chinese are now doing? Well, great power competition is about showing up. U.S. relations with African security chiefs is so critical, right? It's about how do we do project power? How do we have access to African ports? How do we have overflight? How do we work with Africans to address security challenges globally? And the ability to find partners to spend the time, give them the attention, is going to be one of our most important tools in this competition. So what is it we're doing that China's not doing, and why is it that we're doing it? Well, we are, and I think this was contrary to conventional wisdom, we're spending a lot more time with African security chiefs than China is, by far. I mean, China engages with less than twice the amount of African chiefs than we do. And that's different, Andrew, than when we think about the way China engages with African political leaders. So the president of China, the prime minister and the foreign minister have made, you know, probably close to 70 trips to the continent in the last couple of years. President Xi has talked to five African leaders since January. Biden has talked to one. So we expected to see that on the military front, but it wasn't the case at all. We are working with Africans, meeting with them. We are training them. We're spending a huge amount of time building bridges that I think will pay dividends in the end for us. So tell us, what factors explain our disproportionate U.S. engagement with the naval security chiefs of Africa? Is it is, is that a strategic decision? I'm not sure how strategic it was, as opposed to just sort of our programs have aggregated to, to result in more engagement in naval. If you take a step back, both China and the U.S. engage the most with the chief of defense staff, so the number one person, uniformed person in any African military. But then when you look at services, China is fairly even, Navy, Air Force, police, Army, whereas we spend more time with navies, and that's probably for two reasons. First of all, we're increasingly worried about piracy off the coast of West Africa. That's where we're seeing the most piracy in the world today. Historically, there was a concern, if you remember, in the Captain Phillips years in the 2010 and 2011 about piracy on the east coast of Africa. It's also where we have a naval base in Djibouti. So we've spent a lot of time working on those issues, building partnerships. And so I think we're seeing that more often in our observations where it's meeting with Navy chiefs, inviting them to the U.S., and then actually doing these training exercises with them. So tell us more about what we're doing in West Africa. Why are we so focused there? Is it still about piracy? It's grown a lot. I mean, the U.S. has historically been interested in West Africa because of oil production. At one time, the expectation was that 25 percent 
of uh, U.S. oil imports were going to be from West Africa. It's a really nice crude oil. I mean, so sweet, as they say, that you could probably put it in a car and the car could run without any refinement. So that's historically why we've been very focused on the Gulf of Guinea. But over time, because of shale, for other reasons, we've become more interested in just security, protecting facilities from piracy or militants. And we've started to, I think, really smartly focus on fishing. Doesn't maybe seem like a, a sexy issue, but if you ask Africans what they're most frustrated about China, it's not roads. It is illegal fishing. It's also some of the things that are on land, like like wildcat mining. And so we found an issue that our partners care about, and that we care about to have greater maritime security. Our ability to to move our ships and our commercial vessels across these important waters, but also to develop stronger ties with our African partners. Now, China, of course. Is doing something. I mean, they've given over a hundred million dollars in military aid to the African Union between 2017 and 2022, and they've constructed over 40. I think it's 46 ports now in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So, what's their strategic goal? Well, Chinese military engagement is just part of their blended approach, right? So they're focused on. Economic ascendancy. They want to have the ability to project power, logistics for their navy and air. They want to be able to court African votes at the Security Council and the UN General Assembly, so that we don't uh, or no one criticizes them over Uyghurs or Hong Kong. And so the Chinese are doing less personal engagement than we expected. What they are doing, though, is a lot more multilateral engagement. Some of the things that you mentioned, Andrew, in terms of funding peacekeeping missions or, or helping the African Union, the Chinese are actually doing a lot more on peacekeeping than us in terms of boots on the ground. They're the number one contributor to African peacekeepers in terms of soldiers compared to any of the other permanent members of the Security Council, and they're the second in terms of financing them after the United States. So, you know, it's harder to sort of Pull out specific things that China is doing in the security realm for a security goal, but if you put it together with a whole bunch of other things, you can see how they're they're doing a uh, not either or, but they're doing an all of the above approach to win African allies. So some of the key findings of your report were that China engages with top African security chiefs at less than half the rate of the U.S., and that China engagements. With the African security chiefs peaked in 2019 and sharply declined in 2020 due to COVID, and that the overall rate of Chinese engagement with African security chiefs is 19%, according to your data. So, what does this lead to? What does this tell you about overall trends? Yeah, there was two findings that were surprising to us. So one obviously was how much we engage with African leaders more than the Chinese, but the second one, as you point out, is their engagement is dropping. And we could point to COVID. That makes a lot of sense. But our engagement with Chinese officials have rebounded since uh, COVID, whereas the Chinese haven't. And we've talked to a lot of experts, including those at CSIS. And and one of this, the uh, theories is that a refocus on the South China Seas has been a priority for them. And so I think that we are going to see less engagement than we did in the previous decade with the Chinese and African security chiefs. But there may be some other variations from what we've seen over the last decade. So for instance, as I said earlier, the Chinese are courting African chiefs across all the services. Over time, we think that's probably going to be an increase in police, where they are selling a lot of like Huawei and ICT information to. 
And they'll probably start doing more with navies, which is more important for them, particularly as they think about their own positioning, global positioning, and their base in Djibouti. We also think that they're going to look at West Africa more, particularly Francophone West Africa. That's where they're going to have the next forum for China-Africa cooperation in Dakar. It's called FOCAC. And they're trying really hard to catch up to us on soft power. So I think a bunch of those will kind of combine to sort of shape the landscape going forward on Chinese courtship. What, one last point that I think is, is really notable is that we did this exercise in the piece where we, we sort of sorted out engagements versus high value and low value. So what's low value? I go see you, Andrew. We have a handshake. We have dinner. We take a photo. That's low value, right? You come over and I give you a seminar class and you sit there passively and listen. What's high value? High value is training. High value is giving weapons, giving giving PPEs to the military. So the U.S. high value is What if training. I'm just excited to come to dinner? You can be excited <laughs> to dinner. Uh, and I think that's great. But is it going to make a huge difference in your professional trajectory? Right. Is it really going to – are you going to make the kind of personal ties that we've been talking about in this report? Probably not. Still important. Both China and the U.S. do about 50% of their engagement is low value. That makes sense, right? It's, yeah, it's sure. costly to do it, but high value, right? We are high value on training and the Chinese are high value on giving stuff, selling weapons, doing PPEs. We'll see them get more into vaccine for African militaries, but that's going to change because the Chinese are selling more and more high weapons, you know, so more sophisticated weapons to the Africans and the police, for example, and they're going to need to do more training. So that will be another shift over time that we'll start seeing that becoming more a, a bigger percentage of their high value activity. What happens with unstable nations? We recently saw a coup in Guinea, so we have to be careful with who we engage with. Yeah. What happens with that for us in terms of dealing with unstable countries? Yeah, when there is a, a coup d'etat, and that's the determination made by the State Department, we sever our sort of military relationship. So we did that in Mali after the coup in 2019, and we have just decided to do that in Guinea because of the coup there. The Chinese are not under any of those constraints, so they will continue on to, to do that. And it, so it allows their engagement to not have any interruption, whereas ours, we will wait until there's a transition to a civilian government again. And in most of these West African countries that have seen coups in the last two years, they'd say that that will take 18 months. That's their predicted duration of a transition. So that's a lot of time for China to make some gains. Let's talk about COVID for a second. How have the US and China differed in their COVID assistance to African regimes? Well, before the vaccines, we were talking in different languages. The U.S. assistance was all about big checks, right? Announce a fact sheet with lots and lots of money that went to, quote, health strengthening, health system strengthening. But we did get into a little bit on the ventilators and PPE side. The Chinese were on the other side of the spectrum. They were just talking about the PPEs and the ventilators and the masks that they were given. Both countries did that in almost every single country in on the continent. And I think that while our investments were of higher value, uh, to use that phrase again, we're going to be more uh, substantial. The Chinese got a lot of media benefit from it, right? You can take pictures of ventilators. You can't take pictures of a, a fact sheet. As we moved into vaccines, the Chinese were then, again, first in line with, the, with vaccine distribution. And now we're slowly catching up to them. But an important difference is that almost... All of Chinese or the bulk of Chinese vaccine goes to four countries in Africa, Angola, Zimbabwe, Morocco, and Egypt. 
our assistance is to every country. And so I think we're catching up in terms of numbers, but I think we are going to have a more well-rounded, broad investments in terms of vaccine distribution. How do we deal with the security landscape when often it's dominated by warlordism? And how do we adjust our ability to assist with training in that scenario? Well, there are countries that are, you know, in in the midst of some pretty awful civil wars like Ethiopia. South Sudan has really not fully reemerged from its own civil war. And then we have countries where there's, you know, threats of extremism like in Mali or or Nigeria or or northern Mozambique. I think in the countries where there's an extremist threat, we do a lot of work with African militaries on, you know, building capacity and working with them on the CT challenge. And that's something that the Chinese really don't do. They're not really big on CT cooperation. Uh, They mainly work through on peacekeeping. In other countries where we don't see a civil war, we have an opportunity to work with them on making them security exporters like Senegal and Ghana. I mean, that's where we actually are competing with the Chinese because they're doing the same. But it really depends on the country and the type of security assistance that we do, whether we're doing capacity building, whether it's more about targeted counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operations, or it's about you know thinking about their leadership. I, I keep going back to this point, Andrew, that you know maybe it's a future that we want to see with the continent. But during the Gulf War, three African countries sent battalions to fight Saddam Hussein in the 90s. In the 1950s, Ethiopia you know, worked with us in the Korean War. So there's a future where we're not just working on African security challenges, but African governments and countries are working with us on global security challenges. What was the strategy behind establishing AFRICOM there in the first place in 2007? Yeah, there was a, a couple of things. They were trying to solve for some problems, and then they were trying to sort of move forward. So one of the problems that they were trying to solve is until 2007, when AFRICOM was established, three different commands had responsibility for Africa. So CENTCOM had the North African countries, PACOM actually had some of the African islands, and then UCOM, European Command, had most of Sub-Saharan Africa. And the most senior person responsible for that was usually the deputy commander. So part of it was uniting this continent under one leadership. And so 53 out of the 54 countries are under AFRICOM's AOR. Egypt is still part of CENCOM. So that was one. But then putting it all together, how do we make this a priority? How do we have a more strategic approach towards partnership engagement? Increasingly, in 2007, it wasn't about CT as much. Now it certainly is. So it was about, I think, addressing a bureaucratic scene problem, but then also having that unified ability to address both the threats of today and tomorrow. Let's change direction a little bit and let's talk about industry. What are some of the incentives that the United States is trying to engage in to incentivize industry, to engage in new forms of international trade and to promote foreign direct investment? There's a couple of initiatives that have have come up in, in recent years. You know, it's interesting when Vice President Nixon went to Africa in 1958, he wrote a report saying we need to really stimulate U.S. interest in investing in Africa. And so for the last 60, 70 years, we've thrown a lot of things against the wall. But a, a couple landmark legislation really made a huge difference, like the African Growth and Opportunity Act in 2000, which gave Africans unilateral trade preferences. And then I think that the Trump administration deserves a lot of credit for both the creation of the Development Finance Corporation and then this Prosper Africa, the idea of helping American companies access all of the goodies that the U.S. government has. But prior to really Prosper Africa, 
it was like a Easter egg hunt, right? Going from one U.S. agency to another to try to find out where the risk insurance was, where the market intelligence was. So they've put it under under one roof now. I think that's a first step. The second step is really talking to the American public about why to invest in Africa and being honest, right? So the problem with the U.S. government in terms of talking about Africa and investment in Africa is it sounds like it's a cakewalk, right? But no investment is a cakewalk. You look at the market, you look at your opportunities and challenges, you make adjustments, and the U.S. government can be helpful. But we're too bullish to the point of being not credible. So I think we have to fix the way we talk about these investments because American investors have opportunities. They can go to Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. They can go to Omaha, Nebraska. It just depends on how they see the opportunities and the challenges. And then I think the other part is, what are the sectors that we are going to have comparative advantage? There are places that the Chinese are kind of eating our lunch, and I don't see in the near term that we're going to beat them. But agro-processing, the tech, technology, services, there's a number of places, and then entertainment where we are really world-class and can do a lot more on the continent. Well, this is what I wanted to really ask you. So what do we do when China has strong relationships with certain African nations and we don't, but we want to engage with those countries just the same? How do we really compete head-to-head in a place where China already has a foothold? So the U.S. military likes to use this phrase, which maybe one day they'll retire, which is that we want to be the partner of choice for Africa. Africans want a choice of partners, right? So hugely different paradigms. And so just as much as they find lots of value in what they're doing with China, they have a huge amount of problems also with Chinese investment. And they want to make sure that the U.S. is there. They'd also like to see the Japanese there and Europeans. So we have an ability. I think we shouldn't defer or or sort of decide that one country is a sphere of influence for the Chinese because no African government wants to be in hawk entirely to the Chinese. You know, parenthetically, they don't want to be in hawk to us either. But we have an opportunity to create more options for them. We have a better product in many cases to sell. And so I think that's one of the ways in which we work with countries, even if they have a huge amount of invested with China. The other point is that as long as Africans are not being affirmative about what they expect from their foreign partners in terms of investments, they're going to get a raw deal from China. And this is where we're seeing some of the environmental problems. This is where we're seeing sort of you know terrible conditions on loans. So one of the things the U.S. has to do is both show up be willing to be there, even in places where maybe we don't have as much of a footfall anymore as much as China does, but then also working with our African partners to really set some of the standards and practices that would ensure that we won't be discriminated and help Africans make sure that the Chinese aren't going to take them to the cleaners on some of those deals. And I think that's the next step when we talk to to Africans about investment. It's very clear they do not want another Cold War. They've told us that. It's very clear that they don't want to choose between China and the U.S. I understand where they're coming from. What what we really need to do is set out, you know, what are the principles and parameters in terms of investment that they're looking from foreign partners? And I think under those conditions, the United States is going to be very competitive. Now, Judd, I have to ask, political life in America these days is dominated by either America first or build back better or some combination thereof. How do you reconcile those sentiments with the United States pushing out and really engaging in a place like Africa? Well, build back better is a a U.S. focused 
expression, but the Build Back Better World is a global approach towards investment, you know, in in places like Africa, and it's done with our partners. And so, you know, I think there's a through line between all of those things. I also think, and this is probably the first time I've said it, Andrew, publicly, but man, if that infrastructure bill passes, it may be a little while, but we'll get to a place where our companies will start to do great work in the U.S. and then look abroad again to be invested in infrastructure projects on the continent where there's the lowest road and rail density in the world and where the Chinese are doing quite well and we're not. And so by, I think, strengthening our own industries at home, we will be in a position over time to really export that quality and expertise to places a little further afield like in sub-Saharan Africa. Judd, this has been a fascinating discussion. A lot to unpack here. Thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this complex set of issues with the United States and Africa and China in the mix as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 